Welcome to the Wild Truth Chase podcast with myself, Nira Shah, and my co-host, Nick Schaefer. How are you doing, Nick? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Very good. Um, did we have any preliminary items we wanted to discuss coming into well, this podcast? Yeah, so we had our previous episode, last week's episode, on science news and how science news is made. And uh, I think this may have been the first time in a while that you wrote the question and I'm wondering, like, if the audience can tell who wrote the question by the wording. Okay, so it's, do you read scientific papers as a part of your news diet? Okay, that's the question. And then the answers, possible answers are, yes, inject that hard science straight into my veins. Okay, or I don't mind a side of popular science with my news main course. Or if any science touches this plate, it goes straight in the bin. So I think the the hint is that in the last word there in the, in the bin, which I think for the American listeners, what what's the bin? The uh, the trash can is that is that the correct yeah. translation? Yeah, good trash can. Okay, so we had one vote, and it was for yes, inject that hard science straight into my veins. So we have one listener who um, enjoys reading scientific papers as part of their news diet. That's good. I did try to stay a little bit on theme there. So I was like news diet and then I was like plates and I was, yeah. So I was, that's oh, where that came I from. I didn't even realize that oh, connection. You see? <laughs> okay. Um, I'm underappreciated, underappreciated. The, um, okay. So, you know, I, I was looking back at this season of news and um, we started this season on the, the 10th of September. That was our first episode. And it was a few days after Liz Truss had become the Prime Minister of the UK. She became Prime Minister on the 5th of September. And as of last week, she actually resigned. And it does feel like an appropriate time to also bring our season to a close. It's been a really active news cycle in the UK, and it's been an interesting thing to review whilst uh, coincident with recent events. Um yeah, and it actually has colored my experience of the news in, in the last seven weeks. It will be seven weeks. This is the seventh episode. Um, but Nick, Nick, do you want to quickly go over what we what we learned in the previous six episodes? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you're already getting into this, but this is season two, episode seven, which we're calling News in Review. And for now, it's, uh, you know, we're using this episode to kind of review what we learned uh, this season and to wrap the season up um, and move on to something new next week. Um, but before we, we do that, can you just tell us a little bit from perspective or for a person who either ignores the news or is not in the UK, wh who is Liz Truss and what, what happened, roughly speaking? So Liz Truss, so she was the, um, the foreign office minister. Um, and so, okay, let's, let's go back a little while. So we had a, a prime minister called Boris Johnson and Boris Johnson yeah, kind is of, kind of a goof, as he's I a, recall. He, he's goof, very charismatic. And, um, but he also is, let's say, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what a, a diplomatic way to put this is. Um, he doesn't sweat the, the something. Like there's some things he just doesn't care about and there's some things he does care about. And unfortunately, those things that he doesn't care about, a lot of other people care about. Uh, and that, let's say that's ministerial conduct. He doesn't really care about that. He lets people get away with uh, a lot of things. 
And that's essentially what brought him down. Or let's say what brought him down, it was like a death by a thousand cuts. Um, he just kept on making these silly decisions. Um, and yeah, it cost him his job. So he, he had to resign as prime minister. Then there was a, a leadership contest. And Liz Truss, who was the previous um, foreign office minister, she became the new prime minister. And she became prime minister. Um, she was voted on only by members of the Conservative Party, which is a very small proportion of the UK population. And they liked her platform of tax cuts and growth, growth, growth. That's exactly what she, that was. Uh, she repeated it three times. That's what she said. And um, unfortunately, when she came into power and tried to implement this platform of growth, growth, growth or manifesto, let's say the markets did not react well to that at all in any way. And it caused our currency to crash somewhat. And it also caused some uh, run on gilts, which are a type of financial product, which pensions are heavily invested in. And then after that, it was just one, uh, it was just like a slow walk to her resignation. Yeah, not like that she, slow though. I mean, not, <laughs> she, she lasted seven weeks or so. Right? Seven weeks or slow. Yeah, exactly. But she just couldn't rescue it. And, you know, in, in one way I have to commend her because she stood on a platform and she actually tried to implement it, which I would say is rare for politicians. Um, and she just didn't count on, well, she didn't realize that it wasn't really practical. I think more commonly, uh, politicians uh, promise lots of things to, to people when they're campaigning, but in reality, don't try and implement half of them because they know they're not actually practical. But she actually tried. So in some ways, yeah. I respect so, that. So I think, you know, I'll be revealing my ignorance here, but, um, you know, how, how is it possible that somebody who's from a party, which is small and represents a small number of people in the UK, you know, is, you know, has the prime ministership? So the party itself. So in the UK, we vote in parties. We don't vote in people. So we have a general election where the whole population take, take part in uh, the election and then they vote in a party so the conservatives were voted in with quite a big uh, proportion of the population but then you have five years so from the date you're voted in from the date of one general election to the next it could be up to five years and if during that five years say your leader has to resign then different parties have different rules for selecting a new leader but the party still stays in power so Boris Johnson resigned. He was the one who won the general election with a really big mandate, actually. Lots of a high proportion of voters. Um, he had to resign during the five years. And then who the actual leadership election for a party, not for the government, but for a party, is done different ways. And the Conserv Conservative Party just asked their own members to vote for the leader of their party. And that's a much smaller proportion. And actually, actually uh, they have to pay membership fees to be part of the party. Got so it. that's yeah. So that's why. It's, so the, it's that the Conservative Party never uh, came out of power. They were always still in power. It was just that they were selecting a new leader, and that was an internal, internal thing. Yeah. So as you mentioned, like this, this news story has been unfolding basically alongside our season. And uh, but I remember that actually, like when back in episode one of this season, um, which was the news to me intro, that wasn't exactly the story that was on our mind. We were talking more about the the death of the British Queen, which is, you know, 
coincidentally, uh, you know, also coincides with this this timeline. Is that right? Yeah. So the death of the queen was uh, the eighth of September, a couple of days before we started the podcast, and now we do have a king. So King Charles the Third, um, he is our monarch. Um, so that was also um, a significant part of the season, actually, uh, or significant proportion of the season. We had the Queen's funeral. Uh, there was lots of big queues uh, to see that, and yeah, it was. It's just been a really fascinating time in in UK in UK history. I think a lot of these a lot of these events, I think, will go down in in UK history because Liz Truss was the shortest serving Prime Minister. So I don't know. Maybe in a hundred years from now, they'll be calling her like Liz Truss the Brief or Liz. <laughs> <laughs> um and such such name i do i it did make me wonder like what what amount of the news that's being reported now will survive 100 years from now um and i can imagine things like the pandemic will because they are once in a century type events um but other things yeah dif- more difficult to predict yeah so in in that first episode um you know we were talking about a little bit about the news of the day um but also kind of just laying the scene for the the rest of the season and you know where we came into this was i think both of us in a from a place of not feeling very confident about the plan we had for consuming news and that was a lot of the motivation uh for uh doing this season and so then in the second episode we proceeded to kind of just do a survey of different news sources and also try to see what on what kinds of things were those different news sources reporting on on that particular day. And um, certainly we found that, you know, many possible sources of news were available. Um, although, you know, especially for certain parts of the world, it wasn't easy to find news sources that were based in those parts of the world, even if it was possible to find like foreign news services covering those areas somewhat. Were there any other kind of like takeaways from the first and second episodes that you wanted to remind us of? I think we both came away with a, a conclusion that maybe we weren't as worldly as we, th- well, I, I wasn't as worldly as I thought I was. Um, I'm not sure if you think that you are worldly, Nicholas. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, in the, my life, I've moved about 12 hours south or 15 hours south. So I don't <laughs> think I, that counts as worldly. Um, but I know I think it just highlighted, say, the um, uh, our our ignorance of you know what happens in other parts of the world, and especially in places like Africa, um, and even Asia and other places uh, that we just don't hear about and we don't come across in our daily news. Yeah, and so I think like at the end of that episode, you know, having been exposed to all of these different news sources, we were pretty, you know, at least I was pretty excited about like going out and possibly consuming more news. Um, and then, you know, on our third episode, we brought on Ned Schaefer. You want to talk a little bit about what happened on that episode? Well, Ned Schaefer, he's a, he's a bit of a heavy hitter for us. He's a, he's a draw. Um, but he also took us through the propaganda model. And I think in many ways, he schooled us on the propaganda model, because I'm not sure that it was something that we were aware of. Right? Um, yeah, I wasn't. Yeah, I felt a bit like Andrew Marr interviewing Noam Chomsky in that, in that episode. Um, but that was, I think that was probably my highlight of the season. And also, uh, I would say my low light in that it was a bit of dispiriting, I think, in terms of how how you think about the news and how you might, uh, what information you might get from the news. 
Yeah. And we, we learned later that, you know, the, the propaganda model has actually like quite a few different aspects. Um, but what we focused on in that uh, third episode, which was called News as Propaganda, was this idea that even if they're unaware of it, the people who are making the news are kind of like have their opinions shaped in a certain way. Um, and that in turn has an effect of limiting the conversation that's in at least the, you know, the mainstream news. And um, basically the goal of the news then is to have your same kind of those same restrictions uh, apply to your thinking. And so to sort of keep everybody in line. Yeah, basically it's keeping us all in a box and, um, and we don't really end up thinking outside of the box. We, I mean, we spoke a little bit about, you know, the, the financial incentives, because essentially all of these, they're, they're big corporates, the big media companies, and they are all trying to move, um, move forward some particular interests. Yeah. So that was, um, that was really fascinating. And then we actually, in, in episode four, we, we kind of looked at a different, uh, look at this, looked at this from a different view. And we thought about how any proper propaganda model might apply to social media. Cause that's a whole different type of, um, news with, um, like people aren't necessarily being learning journalism to go into social media or rep reporting news in social media. And I think we learned a bit more about a different aspect of the propaganda model called flack. That's right. Um, so flack is the idea that, um, you know, there can be essentially like coordinated attacks on, on media sources. And the example that was used in the paper that we analyzed was Trump and his followers on Twitter in particular, um, who were, you know, kind of taking over the concept of fake news and presenting an entirely different narrative as compared to what was being discussed in the mainstream media. And so, um, you know, in sense, like, although, you know, as we ta talked about, anybody can get on social media and become, uh, you know, an, a participant in the social media, there are still these kind of like gatekeeping dynamics that determines like who becomes very popular and what the, what the discourse is. And those are set by, you know, people who, you know, already have power outside of the social media setting typically. The other thing that we, um, I think there was a, we had some brief, uh, discussion around, you know, the quality of news in things like Reddit or Hacker News um, and some correlation between quality of news and popularity of posts, um, particularly around looking at only a certain subset of subreddits, because for sure not all subreddits have good quality content in there. Um, but there was um, some correlation between popularity and quality content, which is reassuring from my side because I am a consumer of news via social media, I would say primarily Reddit. And yourself, Nicholas, you're a, a Hacker News. Yeah, Hacker News is one of my regular news sources. And I would say like, this is somewhat of a silver lining, this this finding that like, you know, if you're using popularity as a filter, you know, for things to consume, then, you know, it's at least possible that it's helping you to gain access to higher quality information. And so, you know, not not all is lost, at least uh, when you're certain, searching for, you know, particular kinds of information. And I think for me, you know, what this highlighted was that, you know, what you get depends a lot on what you search for as much as where you search for it, because there are certain kinds of news that like, it's just much more prone to being bent in a certain way, you know, or skewed, uh, by a certain point of view. And, uh, yeah. So, so I thought that like, you know, it makes sense to think about what kind of news you're, you're searching out in addition to where you're going to find it. 
And <clears throat> we did search for news in a in a different place in episode five, which was in the past. So in episode five, we looked into the news archives and myself and Nick, we both looked into the archives in very different ways, if I if memory recalls. Um, so that was a little bit of an experimental episode. Uh, we were asking us uh, each other questions. And what did you learn from that episode, Nicholas? Yeah, so this was season two, episode five, news yesterday and today. And I think, you know, almost certainly this episode was way more entertaining for us than it was for anybody who, <laughs> who listened to it, um, which is, you know, that's fine. Uh, but yeah, the, the idea was that we would look into the archives separately. Um, so there are several different websites that archive uh, newspapers, essentially. And then, you know, as we discussed beforehand, the idea was going to be like we would read each other a part of the news story or give us the year or something. And then we try to guess some other aspect of what the, the news story is about. And, you know, I sort of naturally gravitated to choosing what I thought were like historically significant events, at least, you know, I, I even like Googled, like, what are important historical events and based my search off of that. And that you took a very different approach uh, to this. And, um, you know, what I liked about the news is just like uh, the, you know, the news from the past is it's pretty different. It feels different when you read it. Um, you know, we both noticed that there are much shorter news stories very often and that the language is less charged and they seem to kind of like stick to the facts, you know, not, not in all cases perhaps, but, you know, very often that was the case. And so I think that, you know, if you only read news from today, there's a tendency maybe to believe that that's the only way it can be. But, you know, just looking back in the past and seeing what was done in the past shows that, you know, that's, it's not the only option. And I thought that was quite interesting. I mean, we also got stories such as local couple visit San San Diego. I can't remember. <laughs> visit old ship. Oh, yeah, visit an old ship. <laughs> yeah. In the past, the the thing that I really noticed was the the lack of um, pictures. I mean, when you think about it, I guess that's that. I mean, that that feels intuitive that there'd be less sort of images in newspapers in the past. But it actually struck me as making quite a large difference in the way I consume news. Um. And for anyone, actually, there, something was edited out of that episode. There was a story about Salvation Army being attacked. Um, that was by, and, and the gendarmes turning up. That actually was from Geneva, Switzerland, that story. So just putting yeah, that. That's a little bit of an editing mistake by me there. Um, and then season two, episode six, news about science and how it's made. Uh, Nick, why don't you tell us about that? Because really that was that was kind of your your area of competence i would say well it was more like uh me grasping at at uh episode topics because actually what happened here was you know we had been hoping to bring on some true experts in the news and uh you know my network isn't quite as strong as i had thought it was and so we were um looking for a substitute and uh you know I, I thought like, what do I actually know about and related to this topic? And there's a particular kind of news that, you know, I have had a hand in, in helping to make, and that is, um, you know, scientific papers or scientific publications. And so in season two, episode six, uh, which is called news about science and how it's made, we discussed the process of how science news, uh, is made in, in, you know, going all the way back to discussing, how research is done, what are the groups of people that do it, what's the process by which it's turned into a publication, 
And then also for people who are, you know, potentially interested in, you know, expanding their news diet to include scientific papers, how can you search for them, what to look for, how to read them, and uh, those kinds of considerations? Yeah, that was really, uh, I found that really interesting. I also found like the review of three syndrome and the, um, and the, the, uh, the thing about writing papers, <laughs> I thought that was quite amusing. And, and actually, like, interestingly, there is big news. I mean, insofar as it gets to be big news, there's big news on this topic uh, this week. So on my Twitter, there's been a lot of discussion about a publication called eLife and its recent decision to change the way that review is done. Mm. So, um, you know, we discussed how, you know, your partner had managed to get a paper into Nature and how that's like a major ordeal because almost all papers that are submitted to Nature are rejected. And eLife is like not quite on the level of Nature, but it was one of the most popular and impactful open source, uh, open access journals. And they recently, like within the last week or so, made the decision to essentially accept all papers that are submitted. And as far as I understand it, the, the plan is to have all papers be reviewed and have those reviews stay open, but not reject anything that comes in. And so every paper that gets submitted will be reviewed. And as soon as it's, it's reviewed, it will be published along with its reviews. And that will be kind of the new standard for how things are published in that journal, which is you know a, a pretty big departure from any other publication model that I've heard of in the past. That Okay. That, I mean, that feels like a... Like it would take a lot of effort to review every single paper, both from like reviewer side and then edit editor's side. Um, so I don't know how they're going to do that. That'll be interesting to see. I agree. I agree. And so, like you know, presumably something does have to be reviewed to be published. But the you know the major change is that nothing will be rejected. Essentially, as long as it's reviewed, it can be posted, even if it's reviewed very very unfavorably. Oh, so one aspect we didn't actually touch on then in that episode was the. Um, so I think when you submit a a um, a scientific paper, you s submit to the editor of the journal. Is that correct? Yeah, it first <clears> goes to an editor. Yeah, and and then they do like a pre-review, let's say. That's right. And they can reject it at that point, but they may not have any sort of experience in the topic that you your paper is on. Is that correct? Yeah, I think the you know to to put it in a positive light, the way it's supposed to work is that the editor is supposed to understand what the journal's interests are, and review it on the basis of of that. Right? Does does this fit the profile of the journal, and you know would our readers be interested in it? And then a reviewer's decision to accept or reject should be mostly on that basis, not on you know trying to do a critical review of the scientific content of the article. Okay, so yeah, that was just to understand the role of the editor in that in that process. Okay, so that was six, uh, six episodes about news. Um, what were your takeaways, Nicholas? Like, because I remember coming in, you were you were saying that you have a pretty minimal news habit. Um, you don't really spend too much time on the news. Um, so, what did you take away? I think uh, I think my you know general um, tendency to mostly avoid news is is coming out looking pretty good at the end of this season. Um, I think like if you are going to consume news, um, one of the major takeaways from the season for me is that just be really mindful of the motivations and incentives of the people who are producing news, no matter where you're going to get it or no matter what it's about. Um, because, you know, I think that, you know, there's a convincing case made that, you know, news 
is very often not just trying to inform you, right? They they may be trying to to shape your views, and then that can be very natural given what their incentives are. Um, I think also, you know, I already had a tendency to to do some of this, but trying out alternative sources of news, I think, seems to me to be a good way of varying your diet. So whether that's news archives, which you know, as you mentioned, I really liked looking into, or scientific papers or podcasts, and even you know, if you're appropriately cautious, even like social media can be uh, a good source of news. Okay, cool. Yeah, the I, I think I came in with a, a slightly different um, news habit. I was more confused, say, about my news habit, and I was hoping to um, I was hoping from this to sort of form a nucleus of a news habit uh, similar to yours, but I, I did have a, a bit of trouble doing that. Like of the things that you mentioned, the incentives, I think is is really important. I think it's always careful. You have to be careful there to to not get yourself just reading the news that sort of aligns with you and and sort of absorbing the incentives of your of your of your newsmakers. And uh, yeah, I did like the the archives for learning sort of more history behind the news, right? I think that was really it, it definitely added a lot more context, um, and especially to. When I'm learning about historic events, I do think it would be useful to review the articles that were published at that time uh, to understand what the view was from there. Because I guess history is also tinged with different biases and, and such. Yeah, I think uh, the article that I got out of the archives about you know the March on Washington comes to mind, and how it had like a very particular, you know, somewhat strange angle of like focusing on people who were, you know walking away from the the protest because they couldn't get close enough to the monument. I mean, that, that seems to be sort of missing the forest for the trees, uh, you know, given the actual historical significance of that. And so I, you know, I think that, you know, there's no reason to believe that the news has become better at picking out like what the salient points are. So I think that that can be very enlightening to sort of, you know, color your reading of the news even today. And I think just in general, like learning some history to give yourself appropriate context for the reading the news seems like a good idea. Some things that we, you know, didn't explicitly touch on here, um, but, you know, we're sort of in the periphery is like, I think you can consider paying for the news. Um, and that's related to the problem of incentives, because if you're paying people to produce news for you, they're more likely to have incentives that are aligned with you. And, um, you know, read widely uh, in order to not become stuck in an echo chamber, as you mentioned. And also, like one of the great things for me about this episode is that I got to discuss the news with several people that I trust. And so, you know, I think reading the news is very often for people like a kind of solitary activity, but you just don't know what you don't know. And so the more people you engage with about, you know, what you're reading in the news, I think the better chance you have of actually coming away informed rather than uh, propagandized. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I guess it depends who you discuss with as long as it's a a varied group of people. So like, like I mentioned, I did try and I, I have sort of been coming to the conclusion of um, having a, a nucleus of a news habit, which is read the news once a day. I actually think I prefer that, um, which is more similar to having a newspaper delivered to you on a daily basis. And I prefer, I would prefer to engage with the news at, at that pace. Um, I'm going to try and use more aggregators for reading the news uh, to get, as you mentioned, to get that sort of varied and widespread look at the news, not just from uh, single outlets. And the other benefit of using an aggregator, I think, is there's 
if you don't know a new source exists, you just won't go looking for it. Whereas this helpfully makes those more obvious to you. Um, I'm going to stick with Reddit um, and for tech news, Ars Technica and maybe some hacker news. Um, currently, I read scientific papers at work, so I'm probably not going to add any more to my news diet just now. But the other thing that I found is it's much harder in practice to stick to these than it is in theory. So like over the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking about this and I tried to put them in action and it, I would say it lasted a couple of days and then it got destroyed by everything that was happening in the UK and things like, um, will this lettuce uh, outlast Liz Truss? Um, and all of that nonsense. <laughs> yeah, so you, you, you sent that to me, but I think you're going to have to explain what that is exactly. So what that is, is the, the Economist wrote an article, um, I think, and I think it was about Liz Truss crashing the economy in, in seven days, which was less, t less time than it takes for an iceberg lettuce to go off or something like that. It was something of that nature. And then, uh, then a tabloid picked that up during her period where, where her, like, her tenure was really starting to look rocky. And then they had a live stream of lettuce and they had, will Liz Truss outlast this lettuce? And they, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I can't remember when the live stream started, but um, essentially they were seeing if Liz Truss would stay in the job um, longer than this lettuce. And she did not. The lettuce won. They had a party for the lettuce with like on the live stream with, uh, with like disco lights and, and such things and party snacks. Um, so yeah, that was, <laughs> I, I think this is just a perfect example of why you have to be very cautious how you spend your time reading the news. <laughs> it was, you know, like it, in some ways news is entertainment as well. And that was quite entertaining the, uh, but it like in general, watching the end of like watching the period just before she resigned was like watching. I don't know, watching something through 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 your fingers, but not being able to turn away. Um, you knew it was coming, and you knew it was it was just like you could just see it. It was snowballing, and it was going to happen. Yeah, and it was. I don't know. It was a bit like must watch TV for me, um, but it was actually more like a must watch live stream on the BBC website, um, which I was checking every hour or so to see what updates they'd been. So I, I kind of wish I hadn't done that. I think that's a, a, a um, yeah, I kind of wish I, ha I had the strength not to fall into those traps because I'm not sure what there is to gain from it versus just reading the news on a daily basis, right? What's having that information on an hourly, on an hourly base actually going to do for me? It's gonna, not going to have any real benefit. Um, so, so I would say like one way to look at this is that you know, our season for you personally has been a failure, right? Yes, uh, that's right. But, 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 but uh, another way to look at it is that like, at least now you know what you're doing was wrong, right? <laughs> that, that, that's the first step. Uh, that is the first step. Forming yeah. better habits, I think. Yeah, exactly. So acceptance is the, the beginning. Um, but I, I did, I did wonder, like, Nick, do you ever fall down these sort of rabbit holes when, when serious events are going on in the in the US, like say with yeah. the Capitol riots and stuff exactly. like that. Exactly. Just before we came on air, you were asking me about the Capitol riots and like I don't disagree that that was like a significant historical event, but it really doesn't, you know, attract my attention for better or worse. So I don't know why that is, but uh, I do not get wrapped up in news stories very often. 
Hmm. Well, I guess which just means that news is personal to everyone, right? So that, yeah. So, and I think we can see this in your, you, you basically, you, you're you um, interested in tech news, you're interested in science news, and that's what you stay tuned into. But you don't necessarily explore much past that. Yeah. Like I said, for better or worse, I don't, better I'm not worse. arguing that that's, uh, that's the, the best thing to do. Just, uh, telling you what I actually do. <laughs> I think, I think that really does sum up the season in the sense that we, I, I learned that I have some bad habits with news that I really should deal with. Um, but you haven't managed to, I haven't managed to Yeah, Um, I have an idea how I might do, which is closer to your I say closer to your once a day habit, which I think is, I think actually is a, a beneficial, is a beneficial thing. Um, I did have some outstanding questions from the season though, um, which were, are paywalls worth it? Um, both from the consumer side and the producer side. So are paywalls worth it for all the newspapers that are trying to do paywalls? And is it worth paying for your news? Um, Again, with- like globally, it seems clear to me that in order to, you know, align incentives, you would need to pay Um, because, you know, it just seems inevitable to me that if you're not paying for something, then you're, you know, there are going to be other forces at work that, you know, don't align with your own incentives. So that's, that's sort of my quick take on that. Yeah. The, um, the, the, the interesting thing is whether newspapers can actually make it work as a business model or like, I guess, I keep on saying newspapers, but what I mean is media companies now, because they've they've gone past newspapers uh, quite a while back. Um, and the other question I had is like on that is, you may just pay for the news that gives you a narrow world view, right? So you, if someone just wants to pay for like right leaning news, that's all you're going to get. And is that actually worth it um, as well? Yeah, I don't think it's by no means a guarantee that you'll be getting good news diet, but I think it may be necessary. Hmm. Um, and another thing that another outstanding question or kind of outstanding learning for us is the inside scoop behind the news, which is maybe talking to some journalists a bit more t- to see what that process is really like. So we'll see if we can still make that happen some point at some point in the future. And then lastly, for me, addictiveness of news. Um, so this is usually something that's accusations that are leveled at social media. But and and I I wonder if uh, media companies really track their engagement and see how they can optimize their engagement from people and what they might do to try and increase engagement as well. So I haven't really ever thought about that, um, but I wonder if it's something that they do. Yeah, I think that again, like going back to the question of paywalls versus ads, if you're you have an ad-based model, you're going to need lots of people to, to see it. And so you're going to inevitably be led towards optimizing engagement. That's that's at least how it seems to me. Mm. I can see that. But but I, I wonder if, you, if you're if you so led towards engagement, somewhere there's got to be a trade-off between uh, no longer, like trade-off between no longer being a serious news organization versus being something else that's just interested in, 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 in engagement. And I wonder what that trade-off looks like. 
Well, so I think that uh, that brings us to the close of this season, at least for now. Um, I really enjoyed talking about it. Do you have any idea what we might be discussing next? Um, I have no idea. Um, it is your choice, Nicholas. So uh, you did give me a hint earlier, but I don't know if that's what it's going to actually be. Yeah. Okay. So we, we, you know, we've done aging and techno optimism and uh, news up to this point. And definitely aging and news were, you know, were your ideas. And then techno optimism just kind of emerged out of an early conversation we had as we were learning how to record the podcast. And we've got a whole bunch of ideas. Um, and so uh, I get to choose what we're, we're doing next. So I guess you're in for it. I am in for it. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I wonder what it's going to be. Okay, well. Uh, thanks everybody for joining us as always and stay tuned for the first episode of a new season next week. Cheers all. Take care.